Good morning. So good to see all of you here. And of course, as was previously announced, we are going to be having food, which is always an exciting thing to have uh, a meal together as, as Christians and also to have an Easter egg hunt for the little ones, which is always fun to see them running around. And I think Jimmy said he was going to put a $100 bill in one of the eggs, didn't you, Jimmy? Or, or which Jimmy? Yeah, we don't know which one. We probably won't know which one. But uh, that should be exciting. And as I think back over my tenure here, uh, I have grown spiritually, but not only have I grown spiritually, I've grown around the waist. And I know that some of that has to do with the, the food I've eaten here. And, uh, you know, they say, you know, don't get too big for your britches, but I, that has happened to me in my time here, uh, but it's because the food is so good, and, uh, but it's good to see everybody and look forward to fellowshipping after worship service. We're going to be studying from 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and uh, so we're going to be looking at the life of David, but before we launch into that passage, the first thing that I want you to kind of begin to think about is the subject of success. Success. And, and if you close your eyes and you think about a successful person, who do you think about? Who do you think about when you think of success? What do you think about when you think about success? And then some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. If we're going to be talking about success, we at least need someone, talk, someone who's talking about it that is successful. And that, yes, we do like the prerequisite sometimes of if we're going to listen to someone talk about success, you want to hear it from someone who's successful. And, and I may not fit that qualification for you this morning. Maybe when you think of success, you don't think about me. But if you will humor me this morning... I would like for us to think about success together. And we're going to talk about someone who is extremely successful. So who do you think about? If we think about wealth, we probably think about those people like Bill Gates, right? So much money. So much money. Probably more money falls out of his pockets than what any of us make. Or somebody like Warren Buffett, another guy that just seems to make money even when he's sleeping. Or Steve Jobs, we look at him and his life, his business career, and we say, man, that guy was successful, right? Or we think about creatively, creative intelligence, creative success. People like maybe John Lennon, Leonardo da Vinci, Ernest Hemingway, and the list goes on and on of people who were successful in a creative way. They were able to do things. They were able to write and to perform and to do things. And we just say, wow, they're successful. Or we think scientifically, Sir Isaac Newton, a guy who just seemed to see the future and was able to figure out things mathematically about how the world works mechanically, or Einstein, or Thomas Edison. All of those people, we say, they're successful. Or we think about Walt Disney. I know Walt Disney 
is successful because my daughter knows every princess that Walt Disney has ever created. That's success. Walt Disney was successful. Henry Ford, the guy that was able to mechanically set up uh, the auto industry. Who else? Maybe we think militarily Alexander the Great or Napoleon or even sports. Michael Jordan, Michael Phelps, love him or hate him, Tom Brady. Some of you guys are laughing there. And then we think even in a humanitarian sense, those people who were able to do great things like Gandhi or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Albert Schweitzer, all men who did wonderful things in a humanitarian sense. And we say they were successful. Success. It seems so elusive sometimes, doesn't it? And the actual definition of success is this. The favorable or prosperous termination of attempts or endeavors, the accomplishments of one's goals, the attainment of wealth, position, honors, or the like, a performance or achievement that is marked by success as by the attainment of honors. All of us have some sense of ambition within us, don't we? That we want to accomplish something, that we want to have those honors, that we want to achieve something, whether it be wealth, or whether it be honors, prestige, and so on. But I like the way that Mark Twain said it. He said it like this, All you need in this life is ignorance and confidence, then success is sure. And doesn't that seem to be the case sometimes? Because there is a level of success which involves what? Luck. Right? There's some people who succeed in life and it doesn't seem to be because they're just exceptionally smart or exceptionally talented, but it's because they're exceptionally lucky. They just happen to be at the right place at the right time and boom, lightning strikes and they're successful. And there's no better place to look for that than in the entertainment business, right? We've all seen new singers and new artists come out on the radio and you say, what's so great about them? But yet they go on to sell 100 million records and they're successful. So there is this level of luck, serendipity to success. But there's also this level of perseverance. I like it the way that Patton said it. Success is how high you bounce when you hit the bottom. And certainly when we see successful people, a lot of times they exceed what other people exceed and they do things because they persevered just long enough to succeed. They kept trying. Even when the chips were down, even when no one thought they could succeed, they kept going, they kept trying, and finally, they persevered. I think it was... Edison, who said that success is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration, right? So with success, you have this level of luck and you have this level of perseverance. But when I think about success in light of the Bible, in light of people who are in the Bible, there's probably no greater success than King David. 
King David was the definition of success. He was a warrior. He was a leader. He was a musician. He was a writer. He was a husband. He was a father. And in his writings, you find a man of worship, a man of reverence, a man of faithfulness, a man of perseverance. In fact, David, it says of David, he was a man after God's own heart. And I don't know if you hear that about anyone else in all of Scripture that described as a man after God's own heart. And he was a success. And it wasn't an overnight success. And if you look at the life of David, when he was first anointed king, and when he finally achieved the throne, there was a period of time of about 15 years. Some of that in which he was on the run. Fifteen years of perseverance to when God said, you're going to be the king, and to when he finally inherits the crown. His achievements. Think about today when you look at the flag of Israel. What do you see? You see the star of David. That his success is still flying over the people of Israel. That his success is still flying over Jerusalem. The star of David still flies on the flag today. The measure of success. He had position. He had power. He had prestige. He had affluence. And when you look over the course of his life in 2 Samuel, in the very beginning chapters, what you see is, is that first of all, he goes and he conquers the city of Jerusalem. He wins the whole city. He brings in the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And the people begin to worship God in Jerusalem. He's victorious. He's a winner. He's successful. He sets up a covenant with God. God makes a specific covenant with David. And because of that covenant, a dynasty is born in Israel that lasts for over 400 years. He conquers his enemies. The Amalekites, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Ammonites. He unites the whole kingdom of Israel. And he shows kindness to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, even though he doesn't have to. He is the definition of success. He's got it all. Think about that. And for all of his accomplishments, for all of the success that God had given him, and all of the perseverance and everything that he had earned, it wasn't enough. He wanted more. He wanted what was not His. And isn't that how success tends to be in this world? That it's that one thing that we just still haven't achieved that we want so badly. So first of all, what we read in 2 Samuel 11 is unfortunately David's downfall. And if you will, read with me in verse 1. It begins... Look at this, this pattern that happens. It begins with apathy. In verse 1, Now it came to pass in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon. 
and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. The first thing that we see in the life of David is that instead of doing what he needs to do as king, that he needs to be with his men fighting these battles because that's the season that they're in, where is he? He's let his men go do the work while he's back in Jerusalem. So in his success... There's this level of apathy that begins. He's where he shouldn't be. He should be with his men, but instead, he's in Jerusalem. And what happens? Verse 2, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof and of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to, to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. His downfall begins with apathy, then it moves to covetousness. It begins with a sin of the heart. That before he commits adultery, he first sees something that he wants, and then he has a sin of the heart. And isn't that where sin begins in all of us? It begins deep inside of us. It begins with our desires. Proverbs says it like this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That if we protect our heart, it is the center of gravity in our lives. That if we protect it, then it protects us from doing that which is wrong. But we know the story of David here moves In verse 4, then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. So we see the sin of David moving from apathy, moving to covetousness, desiring something that isn't his. And then he moves into committing adultery with a married woman, one of his own men. And he commits adultery. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, we see that something else begins to happen. Look at verses 9-14 through and look at his servant. You see, David desires for his servant Uriah, the husband, to go to his wife so that they can't see that this child is David's. He wants the husband to go to Bathsheba to lay with her so that no one knows that it's David's child. And so he tries to get him to, but it says, verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So that when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to the house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from your journey Why did you not go down to your house? Listen to this. Uriah tells David, The ark of Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my my wife as you live and as your soul live? I will not do this thing. What is Uriah displaying to his king? Loyalty. Loyalty. 
The very thing that David doesn't give in return. He cannot get Uriah to do what he wants because Uriah is thinking about the men who are on the battlefield because he is loyal to the battle that is Israel's. And where's David's gratitude for such a man as this? If you were going to have someone in your army fighting your battle, who would you want in your army? Certainly all of us would say we would want Uriah in our army. But it goes on in verse 15, 14 and 15, that David writes a letter to Joab, the commander, and listen, he said, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. I don't know what that sounds like to you, but that sounds like murder. Put my most loyal man in the thickest, hottest fight and then retreat from him so he may die. So what do we see with sin? We see the corrosive effect of sin, that sin begins with apathy, moves to covetousness, then it goes to adultery, and now David is doing the unthinkable. He's killing his own man. The anointed of God. Mr. Success. I think he's just broke about the last five of the Ten Commandments. Mr. Success. And it goes on to talk about the last of chapter of Leban. Listen to how hardened David sounds. Then David said to the messenger in verse 25, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. Don't let it bother you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. What's David saying essentially? Hey, it's war. People die. Don't, don't be bothered with it. He's so hardened in his heart that he just thinks that murder is okay. And it goes on to say that at the end of verse 27, listen to what it says. But this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Mr. Success, David, had fallen. Not only had he fallen in just a light way, he had fallen in a very big way, hadn't he? But then there comes the word of the Lord. There comes, number one, his downfall, and then number two, a parable. And so, God tells the prophet Nathan, here's your assignment for today. Now think about this. You're going to have to face the king of Israel and tell him what he's done. You're going to have to convince him, convict him of his sin. Now go ahead and go to King David, the most powerful man in all of the land. Verse 12, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children, and it ate his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. 
And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. You see, Nathan paints this parable, this story, essentially showing what David had done to someone else. And when David sees it from the outside, when David sees it in an objective way, when David sees the parable, he sees the wrong. But then Nathan points the story inward. He says to David, and he shall restore fold of the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Can you imagine the feeling that David felt when his sin was finally set before him? And because of this, David repents But God also says there's a price to pay. That unfortunately, even though I forgive you, even though I'm going to wipe the slate clean, the sword will never depart from your household. You've set into motion things that you cannot reverse. And you're going to have to pay for this one way or another. And David confesses. David says, I have sinned, verse 13, against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. You see, sometimes we can set things in motion in the temporal world and God will forgive us eternally, but we still have to reap those consequences which we've set into motion. But God promises restoration to us. And this brings us to Psalms 51. Psalms 51 is David's repentance before the Lord for this egregious sin that he committed. And if you look at verse 10, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Because that's where it began, right? It began within him. Create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David knew that his sin had separated him from God. Don't take your Holy Spirit, he says. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. If you will restore me, Lord, I will bring others to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltlessness. O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David's heart breaks before the Lord because he senses and perceives the weight of what he's done. He's killed a man, and now he's come repentant to God. 
So let me ask you, what is success? Because David had it. David had success. And for all of his success, his downfall came not from without, but from within. And it's a sobering thing for all of us because when we survey the world's success, and the world has these things spread out before us, and says, this is what success is. What does it look like? I can think of no greater description than of the words of Napoleon concerning success, which is this. If you wish to be a success in the world, promise everything and deliver nothing. And ultimately, that is the success of this world. That it promises everything. That the money in the bank promises that all your worries will be done. That pleasure offers, hey, once you have this, you will be satisfied. It promises everything, yet it delivers nothing. And that is what David found. He found nothing. He found estrangement from God above. I want to leave you with some words from Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a great English journalist. He began to look at his own success in life, and I want you to listen to these words carefully. He lived his life as a hedonist for many years, meaning that he sought after pleasure and riches and fame and all of those things, and he found that they were empty. But he says, I may suppose regard myself as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the highest lopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and even a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, they, to partake of trendy diversions, that's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently headed for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Listen to this. Yet I say to you and beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together. And they are nothing, less than nothing, when measured against one draft of the living water Christ offers to those who are spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who and what they are. When you add up all of the success that the world can grant you, it adds up to nothing compared to knowing Christ. Because at the end of the day, none of those things you can take with you. And it seems sometimes that success can impede our spiritual growth. And that's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle. Because sometimes success causes entitlement, like David's. Sometimes success causes apathy, like David, or greed, or pride, or lack of gratitude. And we have to realize what true success is. True success is, number one, a relationship to the God above. First and foremost, 
And if any of your success gets in the way of your relationship with God, it's not success, it's failure. And that's what David found. Number two, that no success in the world it will make up for a relationship with God or a strong character and, or integrity. We've seen in our own city how that someone could rise to the ranks of being mayor, yet within their own personal life, their failings bring them down to shame. And lastly, no success in this world will make up for the nourished relationships that we hold most dear. What success is worth losing the love of your child or losing the love of your spouse or losing the love of your church? Those are the things that matter most. And I'm lastly reminded of the words of Stephen Covey, who was a success guru, who wrote that book, Seven Habits of Effective People, that sold 25 million copies. When he was asked, what is success? He had a unique answer, I think. He said, it's different for everybody, but if you want to know someone's true definition of success, it's what they desire to be said at their funeral. What do you desire to be said at your funeral? Does it involve money? Does it involve a car? Does it involve a house? Most of us desire our names to be associated with the God above and with the people we love. That's what we desire most, isn't it? And lastly, we desire to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, inherit the kingdom of God which has been prepared from the foundation of the earth. That's what true success is. David was so close, and he found it again, but it took the recreation of, of God. It took God forgiving him, and forgiveness is here today. Just as God forgave the heinous, egregious sins of David, God will forgive you and I. And if you don't believe it, all you have to do is look at the cross. Because the cross is the payment for our sins. That's the promise that God will forgive us for as far as the east is from the west. I will remove that transgression from you. But we have to be in relation to Him. And it says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature created again. Old things passed away. Behold, all things are new. The Bible says that if we want to live in relation to Him, we have to believe that He is the Son of God. We have to repent of those sins that hurt us and hurt our families, that hurt our communities. We have to confess Christ to be who He is, the Son of the living God, and to be immersed into His body, the church, to be baptized. And we begin to walk that walk with Him. Or maybe today you feel that you've stumbled, that you've fallen, and in the life of David is a parable to you. And the parable comes back with those words, thou art the man, thou art the woman. Then the Bible says that if we repent and confess, He is faithful and just to forgive us. So if you have any need this morning, we stand with you. And if you have any need for prayer, we stand with you. So we're going to sing this next song.
to encourage any need for prayer or for baptism. If you have any need, won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.